Episode 18, HRV for Training Intervention. Welcome to the Oxidative Potential Podcast, where we discuss all things sports science and performance. I'm your host, Matthew DeRoche, and with me is my fellow co-host, Phil Batterson. Enjoy. In today's episode, Phil and I discuss HRV and its implications for guiding training. So I'm a huge fan of HRV, um, but, you know, we really couldn't uh, include all the wide um, uses and applications for HRV in just this one episode. So we basically kind of uh, honed in on HRV for guiding training intervention. Now, this is not really where I think HRV's application is strongest for, but we did want to bring forth the the literature and the research and what it says on this specific application. So we discuss a little bit of the history of HRV. Um, also, you know, where has the field kind of gone, where HRV is at, at this time? Um, you know, is it super advanced? Uh, is it is it uh, is it still in its early stages? Um, and we also get into you know what are the implications for professional athletes versus kind of recreational athletes? Um, and we kind of discuss you know what are the actual technologies that should be um, incorporated when trying to measure HRV. So is a whoop band optimal? Is a aura ring optimal? Is a you know, is a heart rate strap optimal? What are we, what are we looking for? Should we get an EKG machine and, uh, be measuring HRV? Um, so yeah, I hope you guys enjoy the episode. If you have any questions, just hit a uh, filler eye up on Instagram. Uh, Phil is at critical O2 and I'm at resilience HPC. Be happy to answer them and everything, uh, in relation to this episode will be in the show notes. So enjoy. All right. Welcome, guys, to a podcast. Uh, Matt and I are having a little bit of a uh, good discussion about metrics and measurements and those sort of things. So to catch you guys up, um, we're talking about uh, measuring blood parameters over time. Um, so one of the one of the things that I'm trying to argue for is the, this idea that you know you should have access to uh, the ability to measure your blood parameters, whether that's through a privatized company or you know your doctors just kind of being like, yeah. You, I will, you know, grant you the, uh, the, the blood markers. Um, but one of the challenges that I ha- I've had at least, you know, being like a, a healthy, active, middle-aged male is when I go in, unless I have something wrong with me, um, my doctors typically didn't deny me, um, you know, my, my actual or any, any like blood draws, um, and I think it's important to get those blood draws over time because, you know, say for instance, like, uh, you're, you're stress levels are high, your testosterone is kind of low, but still within range, you can test that over time. And then you can see how it's changing and how it's fluctuating. Um, And it's just really frustrating when you can't because you're just deemed automatically as healthy uh, Mm -hmm. with within the medical system. So that frustrates me. But (laughs) there's, there's no real, you know, excuse for someone that's trying to solve a problem that's not being solved currently through further diagnostics um, and whatever the excuse is, whether it's cost or, you know, this and that, it's just, I don't think it's adequate most times um, because in the long run, we would save money. 
you know yeah it's just it's um these things are important now nip in the butt before they get out of hand because it's much easier to reduce risks earlier on anyways but yeah yeah no i i i totally agree i think like um i think where you and i are coming from is our uh you know we are we know what the like we know the what the literature says about how good exercise is for you how um, exercise and nutritional interventions can be preventative medicine and yet we uh, exist in this uh medical care system that is let's just it's a you're either healthy or you're not yeah, and if yeah. you're deemed healthy we don't treat anything exactly as opposed it's to so being true. preventative medicine and you know it's like i don't have a solution i don't have you know like a like a systemic solution to the problem um it's yeah. just one of the you know kind of frustrations that i have especially being you know like uh, you know, somebody who is on the healthy side of things, mm-hmm. I'd still like to track, you know, biomarkers over time. And I'd still like to um, be able to do that. But again, when you, uh, when you have like the, uh, the resistance to spending any sort of money, you know, for monitoring, um, it, it just makes it hard. Um, I'm trying to remember. So there's definitely a, like, an at home it's it may not it's not at yeah. home testing kit but there's a company that yeah. you know you you spend say $500 per quarter and mm-hmm. you can go to like quest diagnostics here in the United States and get you know a full blood panel and i really wish i could remember what it was called there's uh, a few of them there's inside trackers one that's um, what it was okay yeah and Thank i mean you. there's tons of them there's cyrex labs there's in the states we were just talking about this as well in the states you guys have access um, so if you want to purchase your own blood testing or whatever, you can go ahead and do that in Canada. We can't. So it's like yeah. we're held hostage. It's like, even if you want to pay for your own blood draw and pay for your own blood work, you can't even do that. So it's like you're, you're yeah. uh, in this quagmire of, you know, okay, well, I guess I'm just going to go blind. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. From, from di- diabetes. Um, yeah, an interesting, you know, kind of, uh, piggyback to that is there was a study that was just released and I can't remember what the actual journal was. Um, but they were looking at the increases in body weight over 10 years mm-hmm. in a bunch of different, uh, you know, like, uh, eth- ethnic groups, demographics, those sort of things. And mm-hmm. they found that on, on the whole, uh, this population of like 1200 people gained 10% or 10 pounds, 10% of their body weight over 10 years. Um, and I know those are like quite different like measures, but like yeah. it's, this is the whole, you know, like people getting, uh, gaining more adipose tissue, um, is, is going to eventually put a huge strain and a huge burden on a lot of mm-hmm. like the healthcare system and everything. And, uh, I, I know this, this isn't like a public health podcast, <laughs> yeah, it's but, but but being an advocate for more physical activity no matter what it is um mm-hmm. i think is really important for us as coaches and athletes right like um you know if 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 you're a coach and somebody shows up and there shows up to your gym shows up to your practice and is like hey i you know just want to do i can only i can only afford to come one day a week um mm-hmm. do that like like one day a week to exercise and I don't want to do much. I just want to move. Like don't turn them away because they're not doing enough. Mm-hmm. They're, they're making a step in the right direction for that prevention for that health. So um, that's my PSA for today is like, you know, don't turn away somebody just because they can't, you know, do the quote unquote ideal workout. 
um, or, you know, training prescription or whatever it is, like meet people where they're at, um, help them overcome those, those boundaries and barriers, because um, we're the ones that are on the front lines of, you know, hopefully mitigating these increases in uh, prevalence of overweight obesity. And there's going to be a lot of negative uh, health effects and cost effects. Yeah. Uh, if, if we don't, yeah. If we don't start to actually um, take it a little bit more seriously, because uh, it seems yeah. like a runaway freight train, frankly, at this point, like we're, we're, uh, we're headed towards a cliff and the cliff looks like uh, Wally when all the uh, people are up on the, on the ship, on the starship, just like scooting around on their, on their little like hover, hovercrafts and stuff like that. Um, so not to make a serious subject lighter, but it's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's going to be an epidemic of great proportions, especially mm-hmm. diabetes. But what we're talking about HRV today, HRV is um, heart rate var- variability for people that haven't really heard much on HRV before, but essentially this is a metric that is gaining more traction mm-hmm. in the sports performance field on several different um uh, aspects one being you know for threshold measuring and the other being for uh, recovery and guiding training mm-hmm. so we're not going to really talk about the threshold uh stuff like the dfa alpha one stuff today we're going to talk about uh, its implications for guiding training and its implications for uh, understanding recovery response to mm-hmm. different training um so yeah hrv um, you know, it's it initially started back, uh, well, classically kind of in the mid fifties, sixties, cosmic cardiology, I think was the first big paper that brought forth HRV, which was in Russia, 1967, I believe it was, but, um, this was, this was found, uh, or first measured by a guy called Carl Ludwig, I believe 1847, um Dang, so it's, measured, it's been around a little while yeah exactly and <laughs> i mean they were measuring different aspects of of um pulse and these things before mm-hmm. that even into the 1700s they had like different measurements that they were they were doing around pulse um but it pulse has been measured obviously for ages mm-hmm. but um the way that they're classically trying to understand it as we see it now is really starting to take shape in the early 1700s late 1700s um and Carl figured out this RSA, right? Respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which is not really like an arrhythmia we consider abnormal, um, but it, it, it's it's actually can be a sign of vagal tone and cardiac health. And kids actually have a high respiratory sinus arrhythmia, like a rate of, uh, of this. And they're actually um, showing that it, it possibly the early um, kind of dissolve of this RSA could be a predictor of cardiovascular problems in the future. Hmm. Right. So, so, so this ahead. RSA just, I, yeah. I just need clarification. So, so for, I've read a few of like the articles and stuff, but I'm not mm-hmm. as familiar with HRV as you are. So this RSA is when you breathe in, there's yeah. a change, there should be a change in your heart rate because exactly. of differences in venous return and vagal tone and other things like that. So when you breathe yeah. in your heart rate slows down. And then when you breathe out your heart rate, or the 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 intervals between beats is faster mm-hmm. and then it's slower and then it's faster exactly okay yeah okay. yeah so and that's just showing right and the way we're going to encapsulate this whole conversation is 
the more responsive your heart is to various stimuli and various happenings within the body, that is going to be reflective in a higher HRV score generally, mm -hmm. right? Um, this is going to show um, higher um, heart health, essentially, right? Um, and that kind of can make sense to people, right? The more responsive the system, probably the better the system's operating. So we'll kind of get out of that and start to kind of move into, you know, how do you measure this thing? What are we measuring? Now, there's a ton of different measures around HRV, right? We just uh, kind of talked about one that was kind of centered around you know, RSA. That's not a measure that's typically um, used, but essentially it's the RR, RR intervals. So these RR intervals are these peaks when you see essentially uh, on an EKG, and you can see it in our podcast cover, right? We mm -hmm. have the uh, EKG, the, the heart rhythm there. One of them is backwards, so don't uh, get too worked up about that but, arms about it <laughs> yeah 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 so there's the peak there and that's kind of the r wave right so when what hrv is measuring a lot of times these heart rate monitors are measuring the distance between those two peaks right so if the distance is continuously the same that would mean that you have a low heart rate variability so if you had a heart rate of 60 and it beat exactly on the second every second till 60 that would you would have like you know no variability in your heart rate Zero. that's not generally how it works right we have little differences and you know one's you know 0.75 seconds you know this kind of thing right so the more variable that is the more uh, responsive your heart is to what's going on in the body so um what was kind of brought forth when the russians were you know this kind of started coming around the 20s, you know, oh, yeah, it has implications for health, big implications for health and disease. And then, you know, when the Russians were trying to race for space here, they really started taking HRV and digging down into, okay, what are the different systems affected, you know, by this autonomic function? And how does this kind of tell us what's going on with the health of the individual? And they uncovered a lot there. And kind of off of that kind of really shaped what we see now is the field of HRV, which is mainly used in medicine. It's not really that deep when we're talking about sport. So people think of HRV as a sport thing. Um, the basis of HRV is for medicine. So if you go and read a textbook, it's all medical. Um, it's not, oh yeah, for runners and cyclists. So we're taking a lot of these measures and trying to make them applicable for sport. Mm -hmm. And that's where we're at right now. And there's different measures. We're not going to get into the measures because it's just going to be, you know, it's going to torque people's brains, but just because um, it's it's very complex. I I don't even know what I'm talking about when it comes to some of that stuff. It's yeah, it, they're so deep. I know. Sometimes I see, you know, like the DF DFA one alpha, whatever. Yeah. And I try to read into it and they're just like, yeah, the, the, you know, like fractal dissonance between whatever. And I'm just like, well, you lost me at fractal dissonance. Me. I got no idea what's going on. And yeah. I, I like to think that I can understand a lot of this math stuff, having a degree in mechanical engineering, Yeah, but it's way over my head. And it, it, it's yeah. all of it is just a way of trying to measure you know, variability between beats. So whether it's, yeah. you know, the, the root mean squared, 
uh, or mm-hmm. root mean squared error, whatever. Um, see yep. exactly like this is how unfamiliar <laughs> I am with this stuff. Yeah. Um, or like, you know, high frequency, low frequency, like all of that sort of stuff. When we're talking, especially right now on this project podcast about HRV, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel or, you know, necessarily define the exact measure. Mm-hmm. We're just saying, this is how people used it. And yep. we're trusting that that when people say HRV, they're measuring what they say they're measuring. That's, I think, what the what the bottom line is. Yeah. Yeah, and for example, Phil just talked about one measure there. Um, SSDN, there's, there's tons of different measures, and the research sometimes uses different measures of HRV. And for example, if you use different apps like Elite HRV, you know, this and that one, a lot of them nature be a lot of these use different calculations they use different metrics so understand that just because you're measuring your hrv it might actually be different depending on which app you're using mm-hmm. what the calculations are for all intents and purposes today we're just going to talk about the apps like um, training for hrv which has been clinically validated which you can measure with your just your fingertips on your phone yeah um flash Pretty right cool. or or you can use the heart rate strap which we'll get into after or elite HRV. We'll just talk. Well, generally, what I'm saying, those two are fairly well um, established. They use fairly good calculations for the way they're measuring HRV. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, let's kind of get into. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, and and remember that um, you know we kind of touched on this with like body composition at one point. Or I, mm-hmm. I think I probably went on this rant yeah. a little bit. Is like. I think if you're measuring things over time, and this is where the blood draw sort of stuff comes in. Mm -hmm. If you're measuring things over time, you can get an idea of how things are changing. And um, obviously, you know, like the accuracy is more, the accuracy and the reliability, reliability is more important over time. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're slightly inaccurate with what you're measuring, but you're Mm -hmm. super reliable, then you can Mm -hmm. still track changes and you can still glean information from it. So that's tying back the, the the blood the blood work rant at the beginning yeah, um, no. to now is how do we actually use this technology in order to uh, make potentially informed outcomes on how our bodies are recovering? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a very good point because people talk about oh HRV it changes. I did this thing one day and my HRV was low, and the next day I did it and it was high. And it's HRV is a very very sensitive measure. It's it's very sensitive and it can be manipulated through many different means. Like you could do the same exact day from one day to the next, and you're going to have completely different HRV scores. It's the trends that you're measuring with mm-hmm. HRV. And you will sometimes see like, Hey, if I ate that meal at 10 o'clock versus six o'clock, you'll probably notice that in your HRV score, you know, you're going to see a lot of these things um, out there. But really when we're talking about this, it's trending, you know, day to day, it is going to change. It can be a good indicator. Should I not do this? Should I do this? Um, but yeah, so let's just talk about measuring it right quick. So let's get this heart rate strap out of, out of the way, right? Because this is a big thing. If you're measuring measuring it through your finger on the HRV for training app, that's that's fine and dandy. But if you're going to use a heart rate strap, there's only, there's two heart rate straps that I know of, but the one I'm going to talk about is just Polar, okay? Mm-hmm. Polar H10, everyone. This is the only heart rate monitor that has a high enough sample rate um, to measure what you're trying to measure. It can act as a, as a single ECG. Um, 
and it works even better than a halter monitor when we're talking about doing things and exercise and measuring the, our, our intervals and exercise. Mm-hmm. It performs better. Um, so if you're out there trying to shop for heart rate monitors, the H10 is more expensive. I believe it's like, you know, over $100 here in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, but rest assured, you are getting the best possible heart rate monitor. And I've literally bought pretty much every heart rate monitor on the market. And there's nothing that compares to the accuracy of the Polar H10. So if you're measuring something, it's best to use a tool that is best designed to measure that thing accurately. Because, you know, what's the point of measuring HRV if you're using some, you know, heart rate monitor that has a low sampling frequency um, and you're measuring at a time of the day where it's not appropriate, like some of these wrist optical heart rate monitors, they're not appropriate, folks. Like for... They, they can be for when you're sleeping, for example, and there's no artifact um, from, from like movement. movement. Yeah, like Aura Ring and Whoop and some of these things, they're okay for whenever you're sleeping. But even still, they're nowhere near as accurate as the Polar H10. Um, so really uh, understand that if you want a good, accurate signal, that the H10 is where you're going to get that. And mm-hmm. that is included for exercise as well. There's nothing that tops it for 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 accuracy yeah. yeah that's that's generally what we prefer to use uh for mm-hmm. research and and yeah. we don't even measure our intervals for research but mm-hmm. polar has a pretty good uh reputation within the research field so yeah. that's that's my experience with it i do want to get back to the aura ring and the whoop eventually yeah. so yeah. maybe from a practical application standpoint yeah <clears throat> um but yeah so so i think um with with that kind of jumping off point do you want to jump into the actual original research article and just kind of show people like what how hrv has been used to kind of dictate training and then we can go back and and look at what the meta-analyses say yeah yeah so we'll start with the block periodization one with the cyclist yeah yeah yeah, for sure yeah yeah so this one plues was on this dan plues he's actually got a lot of research into hrv I hope to have him on the show sometime soon. I know we went back and forth a little bit. Um, So this one is called training prescription guided by heart rate variability versus block periodization and well-trained cyclists. So what this, this piece of research did was, um, you know, they've had several pieces of research out before that measured HRV guided training for runners and cyclists to some degree, cross country skiing, all these different things. But, they never really, for cycling in particular, they didn't at that point of time have any research on its, uh, its ability to dictate training versus block periodization. So this mm-hmm. is what this whole paper is about. It's yeah. not like, oh, we never measured HRV guided training before. Oh, we never measured it in running. This is just specifically about cyclists. And I think it does a great job um, in giving people kind of what is going on here. How, is, how do you use this for guiding training? Mm-hmm. um and comparing it to what's like traditionally used for exactly cyclists right you know like block exactly. periodization is probably the most popular sort of uh you know training periodization methodology out there so they wanted to yeah. see um you know does changing the training based on your hrv uh matter <laughs> compared to yeah. block periodization right exactly exactly and um so what they did was they took 20 well-trained cyclists from 18 to 46, essentially. 
they had, you know, at least two years of training and, you know, they could commit to the training schedule and commit to measuring their HRV in the morning. So if you have like, you know, kids that are like jumping on your face and a dog, you know, rustling through the sheets in the morning, trying to wake everyone up, mm -hmm. um, you know, you're probably not be able to do this study, but so essentially they went in and make sure people could do this. They tested, you know, their measures for a 40 minute time trial. They did VO2 max. They measured their VT1, VT2. Um, so they got all the metrics and then they split them up into different training groups. Mm -hmm. So the way that they um, kind of split them up was, you know, one group is going to, you know, measure their HRV in the morning time after emptying their bladder. And depending on where their HRV sits, they are going to make the decision for how to train that day. So for example, if they had a very low HRV score, they're not going to go out and do a high intensity training. Um, whereas the block periodization group basically had everything kind of laid out for them. They still measured their HRV, but they just went out and trained those specific uh, parameters that they were looking at, whether it's high intensity, um, mid range. So we're talking about heavy intensity, mm -hmm. um, or the moderate, they trained it kind of no matter what their HRV score was. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that they did you know, for like the block periodization training. I mean, man, they did two by 15 minutes at VT2. Then the next day came back and did three by four minutes, um, basically at VO2 max. Yeah. And then the next day they came back and did two by um, essentially like a, a modified Tabata. Um, yeah. And then had a rest day and then came back and did another three by four minute at v VO2 max. And I was just like, oh my God, I would, yeah, that would crush me. Yeah. Um, so is this like, uh, again, not being familiar with like the actual like elite training application? Is this like what cyclists are doing? Uh, to that degree? No, like this okay. type of block periodization is very, I think it was very intense to just kind of go to higher the, the most extreme. changes. Yeah, I think yeah. they're really trying to harp on like, okay, if you're training a specific high intensity modality for a large period of time, and then move off of that, they're trying to build a quality. Generally, I don't see much more than three high intensity days in some like, mm -hmm. unless you're a sprinter or something like that, your yeah. relative idea of intensity is going to be different. Right. Um, especially but yeah, this I don't think this, this is not something that would be used in professional cycling where you're doing like back to back to back high intensity days, right? Um, the, there's no longevity in that you're going to yeah. end up sick, injured, blah, 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 this and that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this, this, it, you're good on actually kind of talking about the training because it, it, for people to understand, this may be why we seen what we seen, right? Mm -hmm. Because it was so dramatic and things went, you know, fairly deep into the high intensity realm for these guys, you take that into consideration, right? It's not, but whenever they measured up the, the training volume, so people are wondering like, well, what if the HRV people, you know, spent more time training than the block periodization yeah. group? Well, they ended up with pretty much the same weekly time, right? Mm -hmm. 11 hours and six minutes versus 11 hours and 22 minutes for the HRV group. And essentially and, the and their distribution was the almost the exact same as well which yeah, is also yeah. super interesting um yeah. so you know it might not have been four back-to-back -back, you know high intensity days but yeah. the the distribution was still pretty similar with the only uh kind of change being time spent um at vt2 
mm-hmm. which was 39% in the... Uh, yeah, that was in that between V2 and V2. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, yeah, 39%, so it's a middle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was actually higher, yeah, in the HRV group versus yeah. the the block periodization group, which I think is super interesting. Like maybe it's because you know people during this uh, during this protocol could, um, you know, after maybe like a rest day, handle more better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah and and that's kind of yeah their 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 ratios. For example, for the the HRV group. Um, was 49% below VT1, 39% in between VT1 and VT2, and 12% high intensity mm-hmm. over VT2. For the block periodization group, it was 54, 33, and 13. So super similar. It's a pyramidal, right? They're spending a lot of time low, more in or less in the uh, zone two, and mm-hmm. even less in the zone three. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is this is basically how the hrv uh, group was trained they would take their their hrv in the morning and based off a decision tree on what their hrv was whether it was high or low would essentially guide their training for that day so it's not like they just woke up and you know um you know went out like the block periodization group and trained whatever they actually made a decision off this decision tree Mm -hmm. and also they put caveats in there that you cannot train more than two two days in a row at high intensity and these things like that they put different stipulations in so um yeah it's it's a fairly well you know it's not obviously every research has its its complications and trying to parse out the the factors but it's it's good for we're looking at so what did and it's and it's definitely it's more complicated than uh or the decision tree is more in depth than like previous articles at least from from the yeah. brief scan that I've done where it's like, oh, if your HRV is low, you're doing low intensity. If yeah, your yeah, HRV if is high, high, you're doing high intensity. The high intensity yeah. So it's, it you like know, that. so that was like a binary decision sort of tree. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you are interested in looking at this article, they do have a nice little schematic of how they uh, decided to do the training. Um, yeah, yeah. So you should look at out. that. Yeah, because it'll make a lot more sense of how they, and I can't explain it to be impossible to explain a decision yeah. tree, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, check out the article, be in the show notes link. Um, so what did they end up finding? Well, they found that, yeah, both groups I- improved, right, from uh, pre to post, but the HRV group had kind of stronger correlates with their improvements, right? So mm-hmm. The qualitative assessments is which is which is called you know likely beneficial, very likely beneficial, unclear, uh, possibly trivial. You know a lot of these measures for VO2 max, power peak power output during the ramp test, um, the wattage at VT1, wattage at VT2, all these correlates were much stronger um, in the HRV group, right? They ended up having a higher increase in a lot of these measures. Um, VO2 max was kind of like likely beneficial. They both increased their VO2 max, but it was the peak power output and the um, percentage of VT1, VT2 that were kind of the big pullers mm-hmm. for, you know, the HRV group. And so it looks like they were, were responding better, obviously, right? Yeah. They're both doing similar amount of training, but one is getting slightly different adaptations, stronger adaptations than the other we have to take this into consideration. It's one study, it's low sample group number, only eight but, weeks. 
Yeah, and it's only eight weeks, right? But what we know is that um, what we'll get into later is there's tends to be less non-responders in HRV guided training, mm-hmm. right? This kind of study kind of uncleared that. I cleared that too. Is you know when you're actually basing decisions off of current physiological status, it makes sense that you are going to respond better than if yeah. you were to just go out and do four by four, no matter what, two by two, no matter what, mm-hmm. two by 25, whatever it is. Um, so this is kind of the groundwork for understanding, hey, um, what about instead of block periodization, we actually make decisions based off what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. I had a conversation with John Kiley, which would probably be up by now or up close to this time. He is a big proponent of, hey, what does block periodization actually mean? Why are we doing this thing? Are we actually getting anything that we should be getting out of it? Um, is there a yeah. better way to approach things? And this is what this study is trying to pick apart. Can we find a better way mm-hmm. than just stating this is the way um yeah what about what the athletes responding to so yeah yeah exactly and i think like you know block periodization and the other sort of periodization methods kind of came about with the observation that oh on the whole most athletes respond better to this compared to you know say maybe randomly throwing a bunch of different physiological adaptations at the wall um so the whole point of block periodization, right, is to is to better prescribe exercise to those that are going to respond to it. But now we have the ability to measure individually how somebody's physiology is responding. And this HRV like was 60, 60 seconds or 90 seconds or something like that in the morning. All you got to do is put your finger on your camera yeah. and it gives you an HRV score. So, you know, very, very minimal. And, um, you know, while the benefits, you know, like the, I think, I think the only real, uh, or there were, there were three real changes, the wattage at VT one, which was higher compared to the block periodization group and then peak power output, which was higher compared, uh, I think it was higher compared to the, uh, block periodization group, but while those were the only two that actually changed within eight weeks. I think it's important to note again, like what you were saying, Matt, is that the, um, on the whole, there were more positive responders than non-responders. Cause a lot of the times in human research, we, we prescribe, like I, I just, uh, submitted a study for review that used, um, what was it? It was seven sessions of high intensity interval training where we took participants through a minute, hard, a minute, easy, 10 times every other day for two weeks. And we definitely see kind of like, you know, people who responded really well to it and other people who didn't improve any, any indice of performance, um, over the entire time. Um, and you know, when you make those blanket training prescriptions, it's, you're, you're always going to have responders and non-responders. Um, just as a, something I had noticed when I was, um, you know, like a cross country and track runner is that, you know, a lot of, a lot of coaches, that's how they prescribe things, right. Is they have, they have, you know, like your, your top seven and all top Mm -hmm. seven of those people are going to be doing the same workout on that day. But then that top seven, after like, you know, the first 
we'll say we're doing like, you know, five mile repeats or something like that. The, the top seven, it's so fractionated at the end of the first mile. And it just keeps yeah. getting more and more fractionated because, you know, the, the top guys could handle that workload. And then it was too fast for the middle and the lower tier guys. But yet you were encouraged as a middle and lower tier guy, I'm speaking from experience to yeah. try to be up with those top tier guys. And it would just yeah. dig you into the, it would just dig you uh, into a deeper stress hole. Yeah. And then you're frustrated because your performance isn't, isn't improving as much, but the top guys, their performance is improving. I got to train harder, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so it's, it's this weird mentality of like, yeah, well, yeah. I just can't, I just can't keep up with them. So I got to just keep pushing harder and harder. Whereas you're probably stressing yourself too much to try to keep up with those guys just based off of these blanket, you know, training prescriptions. Um, so I thought it was a good, like, I thought this was a really cool study because of the practical applications of it. Um, and yeah. there, go ahead. No, and, and that's what we're saying here. Like, regardless of how big of a difference one group made towards the other, HRV didn't make the athletes worse, right? Mm -hmm. Right? It didn't make them worse. Maybe it could have if we took another sample group of maybe two people or whatever, four people, maybe, maybe mm -hmm. that's possible. But regardless, compared to block periodization, and every study I've seen with HRV, I've never seen a negative effect from mm -hmm. HRV training. Even if the, the effect is unclear compared to the control group or the training group, yeah, I've never seen it do, you know, it didn't result in poor results, essentially, is what I'm mm -hmm. saying. I've never seen that to be the case. Yeah. I've seen, you know, equal results, sometimes a little bit better. Um, but yeah, what we're seeing here is you're not going to lead yourself stray by using a physiological metrics to, you know, dictate your training, probably. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's just another, it's another tool that you could have in your toolbox. And, um, I really think, um, so figure five is, is kind of the most eye-opening because it, it shows mm -hmm. the, um, change in 40 kilometer time trial performance mm -hmm. of all the participants in each group. And the yeah. HRV group had one person who was just 0%. Yeah. yeah. But nobody that was negative. Yeah. In the block periodization group, it's a smattering. Like, yeah. you know, have you have a some person who decreased 12% on their 40 yeah. kilometer time trial performance. And yeah. then yeah. on the other side of things, 10%, yeah. um, which still isn't as high as the HRV group. So, you know, these guys yeah. 12, 15% improvement. Um, and so it it should open up your eyes as like a coach that, oh, maybe modulating when we're doing these training sessions, you know, yeah. in a, in a recovered state or in a depressed state is affecting the performance of my athletes. Um, because all things aside, if you just looked at, you know, like, like group means improvements, like those sort of things, you would just be like, Oh, you know, there was no benefit of HRV versus, you know, block periodization. Mm -hmm. Um, because all of the outcomes seem pretty similar. But then when you actually look at the distribution of how things were changing, it is pretty eye-opening that like, oh, wow, pretty much everybody positively responded. We responded, to the HRV yeah. group versus, again, you see, you know, three people were negative responders, three people were maybe non-responders, and then three yeah. people were positive responders in the block periodization group. And this was trained athletes. Yeah, yeah. 
So you wouldn't really even expect to be able to detect too many changes and things like VO2 max, peak power output, other things like that. And they're still showing, you know, significant improvements Mm -hmm. in both of them. So I'm going to take a leak right quick. Yeah, sounds good. I'll I'll take a break too. (laughs) Woo! We'll be right back, guys. Yeah, so let's start looking at some of these uh, meta-analyses and try and wrap our head around, um, you know, what what does this look like when we're talking about all the research that they could conglomerate into one legible statement, essentially. Yeah. One statement, but... Yeah, I think let's start with the uh, MDPI applied sciences one, um, because they kind of do a little bit more of the comparison between, you know, different training programs and then HRV uh, Mm -hmm. training based programs. Um, And so, so for those of you who are unfamiliar, um, a meta analysis is basically a study of studies. So after, you know, after a number of studies have been published within a field, you can go back and you can do a meta analysis where you pool all of the data together. And um, if you're looking at, you know, like uh, a, it's not Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but Maslow's hierarchy of like data or whatever it is, <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the meta-analysis is the peak of that pyramid. Um, kind of, as long as it's done correctly, it's it's kind of viewed as like the uh, the highest level of evidence for, against, or, you know, null uh, for whatever you're trying to test. So this first one, um, is freely available and it's entitled the effectiveness of training prescription guided by heart rate variability versus predefined training for physiological and aerobic performance improvements. And they did a systematic review and then a meta-analysis on top of that. Um, and, uh, basically, you know, the whole idea was to do the exact same thing as the previous paper did, except this time pooling all of the, uh, the eight articles, Uh, that were that were defined as being inclusive um, for this and it's funny because like I mean eight articles doesn't seem like very much but 
when you pull eight articles of, you know, 15 to 20 people together, it does actually improve your sample size a lot more. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's one of the big things that people always complain about with human studies is they're like, oh my gosh, why did you only have, uh, you know, 15 people in your study? Um, I actually had, <laughs> there was a, during my master's degree, um, I was in the, the department of biology. And um, so we had everybody from like geneticists, working with like fruit flies and um, mm -hmm. some some worms mm -hmm. for like vectors of, of Lyme disease, all mm -hmm. the way to exercise physiology where um, I worked, I co-worked in a lab with that was like uh, human performance. And then the other one was cardiovascular physiology and performance to heat tolerance and those sort of things. So my friend was giving her uh, master's dissertation defense. And uh, one of the uh, more basic scientists who worked on like the Lyme disease mm -hmm. basically raised her hand and was like, well, why didn't you get 150 people in your study? You only have 15 here. And uh, I mean, first of all, like from, from my perspective, I was just like, oh, that that's absurd. But the, the answer to the question was a little bit more graceful uh, from my friend. And she was basically just like, well, you know, it takes at least three months to get people through this study so if it would take almost like, you know, it'd take, it'd take 30 months to, yeah. you know, to get a hundred, a hundred people or 150, 10 times more people, if we had that amount of people who were even interested, um, yeah. and master's degrees are supposed to be two years. Uh, so, um, 30 months to basically like three to five years to collect enough data just for one study. Um, so it's really hard to actually collect enough data or to get enough people, um, you know, to really extend your analysis to a population level. Um, so whenever you're looking at normal research articles with humans, always keep in mind who the population is that they're studying, right? And unfortunately, most of the time, it's, uh, it's 20 recreationally active young men because uh college college campuses are uh, <laughs> yeah. you know you typically recruit your friends um yeah. and 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 those sort of things so just just take that away and that's why meta-analyses are good because they can they can start to push together all these demographics all these different studies um and that sort of stuff so what did they actually find um well first of all they they had like their predefined training which I think was just like an umbrella term for either. I think there was like one study that did block periodization and then other studies, it was just kind of like the typical prescription of, you know, you're doing high intensity interval training, you're doing, um, you know, sit training, like whatever it is. Um, and they found that HRV guided training significantly improved things like maximal oxygen uptake, uh, maximal aerobic power or speed. So peak power output peak or peak speed, aerobic performance mm -hmm. and power or speed at VT one and VT two. So again, like kind of like what we saw in the last article, uh, HRV guided still improved all these indices of performance that we've talked about yeah. in the past. Um, however, when you compare, uh, HRV guided training to kind of the, uh, what is it? The predefined training, uh, there was not any significant differences in VO2 max, watt max, aerobic performance, um, mm -hmm. or speed 
at VT1 or VT2. Um, so, so HRV guided training was not better mm -hmm. at improving those performance indices. Yeah. Um, but it was, but it didn't negatively affect it. Kind of like what we were talking about again. Yeah. And most, most coaches and most people I hear, well, HRV doesn't work. And they've read yeah. these same studies and they're like, oh, it doesn't show any benefit. Why would I do it? It takes more time than the athlete. Mm -hmm. But if you read these care, these studies carefully enough, the talk of non-responders, do you want to be that coach that's working with an athlete or do you want to be that athlete that's non-responding or negatively responding? Yeah. Because the chances are you're going to be more likely in the group that is not using HRV. I'm not saying everyone has to go out and use HRV. Mm -hmm. um, you're obviously, you know, testing yourself and seeing how you're improving um, to your own degree, but the chances of you responding poorly to a training intervention are much less, right? Like this mm -hmm. is the fine comb that's, uh, that's going through here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, again, it's, I always come, so, so something I've been thinking a lot about is how or what are the most important principles for continued improvement of endurance performance? And uh, the big thing that I always come away with is consistency. Like, I think that that is like the absolute top. If you're not staying consistent because you are too stressed out with your family life, your uh, training plan is too demanding. So you get sick. So you, you know, get burnt out. Um, you're not sleeping enough, like other things like that, that is that consistency is going to be diminished. And then that kind of like, you're going to have good days and bad days, just like the stock market. Right. But yeah. overall the trend is up mm -hmm. and that's what consistency affords you. Um, it doesn't matter if you have like the, the best laid out training program, you know, for, from like, who's the guy, uh, like the speed skater that now everybody is like, Oh Neil my gosh, Vanderbilt. his, yeah. His training manifesto. So I have to do that. Yeah. Good luck. Good luck. Yeah. That volume and everything that he was taking on is absolutely insane. And that's what worked for him. That doesn't mean that's going to be the perfect training program for you. Yeah. And it's maybe the same. not the training per perfect for him either. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. We don't even know. Like it yeah. just worked for him because he can absorb all that load. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with, you know, people trying to follow like uh rich Froning or Matt Frazier's like training plans. Yeah, yeah. Rich Froning's training plan for CrossFit is such an insane amount of volume. Mm -hmm. Like if I did one of those workouts, actually, I actually can't do any of those workouts because they're just absolutely monsters, but mm -hmm. Over time, he's developed, you know, enough resilience to be able to at least do that consistently. Um, but I think there's got to be some logical fallacy within that, that, you know, people see, oh, this is what the elite level athletes are doing. Therefore, it must be good for me, um, as opposed to taking a little bit more of a, a, a personalized physiological approach by using HRV to guide whatever your training is, because um, that will keep you consistent. That's the bottom line is yeah. you want to stay consistent and just making these sweeping, uh, making these sweeping training prescriptions we show is, is probably not adequate anymore. Yeah. yeah. So, 
so that was a that was a very quick overview of of what they looked at and what they saw and if you if you only look at you know these training indices um you would say eh, probably doesn't matter if you're using hrv or if you're you know using just like a a prescribed training method mm-hmm. um but think about the longest training intervention was only two months yeah. a lot of people can deal with a lot of uh stress over one month or two months um it's it's further out that you would start to see things like getting sick or uh you know diminished recovery or or other things like that so keep that in mind so let's move into the review yeah journal of science and medicine and sport let's see here so essentially um this is the same concept they're doing a systematic review with a meta-analysis and this actually took 10,000 pieces of research and they whittled it down to eight yeah so exactly i i i when i saw eight i was like yeah. oh did they use the exact same articles from the from the other uh <laughs> the other meta-analysis the answer is no yeah. um but yeah yeah, so this is really good for people to understand. They're not the, the criteria for these is is quite, you know, high. Obviously, if they're coming out with eight, I mean, yes, there's duplicates and things like that that just kind of get weeded out off the top. Um, but the eligibility was, you know, was pretty pretty astute in my understanding. Um, and essentially, if you if you look at the the results of this it's showing pretty much the same thing as the previous system systematic review right um the responses that were that were were seen with the hrv groups um you know were kind of small for certain certain measures right so vo2 peak you know they're not they're not really different than what we're seeing with you know the training based groups um or sorry that non-hrv groups right um so what this this study is actually kind of or this systematic review is trying to get at is you know what is the basis for this what is the basis for monitoring hrv with some of these wearable technologies it's not so much you know a what's it versus block periodization what is it versus you know it's more so is does it hold validity to actually just train in general um mm-hmm. is it going to make someone worse by going out and trying to measure hrv with um you know whether it's the aura ring whether it's whoop whether it's the polar strap um and realistically they're showing pretty much the same thing it's like um yeah you're not going to get a huge performance gain outside of what we're normally seeing in training but you're also not going to be dipping below this threshold whereas you're a negative responder most likely mm-hmm. this is the main benefit for this stuff this stu- this stuff does show that it's inherently fairly accurate at detecting whether you can handle some high stress load um, whether you can handle some low stress load work um, and whether to keep kind of training or whether to take rest um, 
so yeah so you know like the sub maximal parameters like um lt1 lt2 um, vt1 vt2 you know they showed you know improvements mm -hmm. um but and yeah kind of, and kind of on sorry. the whole if you look at those forest plots as well there's a tendency so it's not statistically significant only in the uh only in the submaximal parameters, but there's still a tendency to have everything kind of shift a little bit in the favor of HRV. Yeah, um, yeah, you're right. So, yeah. so again, you're not sound like a zealot here. People right. are like, oh, this guy's HRV. Uh, right, no, HRV. But it's just what it is. Yeah. <laughs> 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 little South Park reference. Right yeah, there. yeah, exactly. Um, um, no, it, no, and uh, again, it just highlights that. Um, in, okay, let's take let's take it from a performance perspective, right? If you're an elite level athlete, you're looking for 0.001% improvement in performance because mm -hmm. the difference between winning an Olympic gold medal and not could be because of that 0.001%. Yeah. So if even though it's not statistically significant and a lot of these studies, you know, look at people who are like untrained or not elite athletes or whatever it is, by taking either one minute a day or by, you know, doing something that is kind of guiding training to measure physiological parameters and uh, changing your training based on that mm -hmm. could, could give you that very fractional uh, proportion of benefit when it comes to yeah. performance day. Um, yeah. So, so that's kind of our point. Mm -hmm. Um, you don't need to throw the, you know, you don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say like, oh, I can, I can only use, you know, HRV guided training now because I mean, predefined training, <laughs> it's pretty darn good at still improving yeah. things. Um, but if you're looking for that edge, then, and you're not incorporating something like HRV to help guide your training. Uh, then you're, you could potentially be missing out on, on some gains. So I know we talk, we go back and forth on like, oh, what's optimal and what's, what's not. Um, and in this case, you know, it's like, it doesn't seem like that much of a, a an opportunity cost differential for using HRV. Yeah. You have a phone, it yeah. might cost $5 for an app to be able yeah. to measure it and track it over time. Yeah. Um, but that, that could help you stay more consistent over time yeah um so yeah. go ahead no go ahead i i don't know i lost it yeah no no i i think that just regardless of i know people think it might be a pain in the ass like phil said 60 seconds like you can get away with one minute hrv measures two minutes is probably is better just in case you know because it, it inherently takes us on the noise Five minutes is even better, but mm -hmm. realistically, you can get away with one minute. Yeah. One minute is all you need. One minute is better than nothing, in yeah. my opinion. Um, two minutes is better. Five minutes, even better. You're just getting more data, more signal, mm -hmm. clear signal. But realistically, from all the research that I've shoved out, two minutes seems to be like if you have two minutes in the morning. And this is where I kind of break down. I don't, I don't, uh, always encourage every athlete to use hrv because i just know their personality type and i just uh they're not going to want to take two minutes but mm -hmm. realistically realistically if you can take two minutes out of your day in the morning to be still and kind of sit there and it gives you kind of this process where you're being reflective on your state of being 
Now we're all reflective yeah. on our state of being from training, you know, some people more than others, you know, sometimes it's just kind of subconscious. We're taking into consideration. Oh, my legs are trash. You know, you're feeling it when you sit down. Some people are more physically aware. They journal, they have different metrics where they're, they're writing down how they feel before sessions, their RPE, mm -hmm. all this stuff. HRV is kind of a really good opportunity to do that because you're mm -hmm. sitting there being still with your body. You're taking in consideration how you're feeling for those two minutes. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you're not, but it's just a process that will inherently make you a better athlete in the long run Yeah, because you're measuring and reflecting. You're yeah. measuring and reflecting. And the more you do that over time, the more you get to know how you're responding to different things, whether it was asleep the night before, whether it's the diet, whether it's you're getting trends. And what we're doing with these trends is you're not, yes, you can make decisions based off of a single HRV measure. I don't, I'm not out that far, you know, mm -hmm. where I'm like day to day, I'm like, oh, you know, don't train today. Don't, it's taken in consideration like, hey, your HRV score was not in, it's not a bit high or low too, folks. Sorry. That's the other thing. It's, is it within the appropriate range mm -hmm. for what type of sport you're doing? Because endurance sport athletes are going to have generally higher HRV scores because of increased vagal tone versus a weightlifter or versus an MMA fighter or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's not always just about high or low. It's how is that in with reflecting to your baseline and your range mm -hmm. for what is normal for an athlete. Right. Um, and also it's the trending. So don't just take like, yes, like we said, these one day measures, you can make decisions based off the decision trees and choose, but get to know your trends, get a good mm -hmm. baseline of what you normally are at throughout your training. And also trend your things over weeks, seven day rolling averages, 30 day rolling averages, mm -hmm. um, 60, 90 day rolling averages. And then you're starting to see, whoa, okay, that's every time I do this type of training or anytime I'm in need of this type of training, I seem to respond really well to that for the first few weeks. And then it starts to taper off. That's mm -hmm. weird. Maybe that's a time where I should be pulling the trigger. It doesn't seem like I'm adapting. Right. Um, and it gives you a much, much, uh, bigger picture view when you're trending right so you know get up in the morning do a two minute measure one minute measure whatever you want to do heart rate strap is better than finger mm -hmm. right the polar rate 10 is better than finger but if you can only do the finger and it's that's the way but people should invest in a good heart rate monitor yeah. like regardless you know it's the amount of money people put into their bikes people spend on <laughs> shoes shoes are a good investment as well right because a good bike fit the same thing they're all good investment but a heart rate monitor you know, accurate heart rate monitors is a huge, huge thing for me. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think, you know, you're touching on, you know, looking at your rolling averages and other things like that. And that's like, yeah. uh, either a, what a coach should do, or mm -hmm. this is where I see things like aura and whoop being beneficial yeah, is, yeah. you know, yeah. you wear it at night and obviously their measurement differences, there's measurement differences and those sort of things. Um, mm -hmm. but everything is already like kind of automated for you. You you open yeah. your app. Well, we'll use whoop as an example. We're not sponsored by whoop or anything like that. I just think they have a, a, an interesting platform, but you open your app and it says, Oh, you're either in the green, you're in the yellow, or you're in the red. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty easy decision tree right there. And it's based off of not only HRV, but your resting heart rate, how long it took you to get to your resting heart rate, all of these different parameters that they, their scientists have deemed as important for recovery. So, mm -hmm. This is where 
when I go to the CrossFit gym, there's so many people who wear whoop and I always ask them, Oh, what do you actually use that for? They're like, nothing. <laughs> I'm like, then why the hell are you wearing it every single day? Like, is it just, it, it, I mean, I think it comes, comes down to, Oh, well, I just want the data and I just want to look at the data cause it's pretty. It's like, well, you could be a little bit more, um, direct in and in actually use that technology for your benefit by saying like, oh, well, if it's in the red, because that would mean that you're probably trending downwards because they take rolling averages into consideration, mm -hmm. then I am going to do something that's easy today. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe I'm not even going to do like the wad because it's too intense or, you know, something like that. Um, if you're in the yellow, then it's like, okay, you know, today is just kind of like, uh, I'm, I'm just going to do the workout, you know, have fun with it, whatever. If you're in the green, it's like, all right, empty the tank. I'm going, I'm going all out here, um, mm -hmm. to try to gain the most benefit from my physiological state. Um, but again, I don't see people using it. So, right. so it's like, what's the point of spending $30 a month? to measure all of this sort of stuff. If you're, if you're not going to actually use it. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I go, I swing on the technology usage side of things and the non usage side of things like quite often. And right now I don't measure, I really don't measure anything. Um, mm -hmm. and it's just because I'm trying to become like you were saying in tune with my body how does my body actually feel and what do I think my body actually needs for that day? Mm -hmm. And, um, the crazy thing is, is that, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm a pretty competitive guy and there's a lot of competitive guys at the CrossFit gym mm -hmm. and there's comments that are made. That's like, uh, Oh, why are you only lifting, you know, the bar today? Or why are you going so slow? Or why aren't you doing this per, you know, RX, like whatever it is. And when I know, that's something when, when I know that I'm like trashed from the day before, like today, like I feel, I feel tired. I was really groggy when I woke up, my legs are probably going to be pretty heavy. If I get on the bike, um, mm -hmm. I know that today would be a good day to either forego the workout, do my own thing. Or if I do whatever the workout actually is, just lower my ego and go based off the pace that I need to go. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you're, I like to think that I'm like, you know, can check my ego quite well, yeah, yeah, yeah. but if you're still learning and you need a reason to, you know, like say like, oh, I need to go easy on this workout. Like there's no shame in going a little bit easier because that's going to keep you consistent. Yeah. So having like whoop be like, oh, I'm in the red today. I need to go light on all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. That's Okay. Because I've seen time and time again, these type A personalities who come into the CrossFit gym and just go all out every single day as much as they can. And they're like consistent for a week and then they injure their back and then they're consistent mm -hmm. for a week and then they, you know, tweak something else. And then, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's this roller coaster and they just end up staying the same the entire time. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was a, that was a, a long rant of, um, you know, if you're using whoop, if you're using aura ring, if you're using HRV for training, any of this sort of stuff, um, you can use it as a tool to become more aware of your body and then modify on the fly, what sort of training you're doing, whether that's for endurance stuff, whether that's for CrossFit stuff, um, even strength training stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so 
that's kind of the big takeaway I would say mm-hmm. is use this technology to your benefit. And if you're not actually using whatever metrics you're measuring, then don't freaking measure it because it's more stress. Yeah. It's just adds more stress to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, this, this is a good episode. Um, we'll do more on HRV in the future. Like, we'll, I'm sure we'll do a little bit of a segment on, you know, the nitty gritty and the threshold, um, HRV values that are out there in the literature and hopefully can get Bruce Rogers on the podcast at some point. I'm sure he's a busy guy, but yeah, so that that's a really good summary of HRV, how it's used, how it can be used. Um, and um, I think if, if you have any questions or anything to add, like that you use maybe slightly different, um, like maybe the Rusco orthostatic uh, test, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're measuring your heart rate compared to different positions or whether it's just resting heart rate, whatever it is that works for you, just, you know, if you have anything that you, you've noticed with it, maybe measuring your HRV and maybe it hasn't worked for you, hit us up and we we can uh, maybe talk about why or why not that might yeah. have, you know, been the case or might not be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to find us, best place to do that is generally on Instagram. Phil mm-hmm. is at critical02. I'm at Resilience HPC. Um, yeah. And let us know how, how we're doing. It's always good to get feedback. If, um, you know, if you, if you hate the sound of my voice or something, I can't change that. <laughs> I can change it a little bit, but probably not going to be for the best, but, uh, you know, anything that we can do to, you know, make the show better or yep. whatever, just, yeah. just let us know. Yeah, we're always looking for for good constructive criticisms, feedback, those sort of things. And um, yeah, I, I really appreciate everybody who's reached out to me uh, via my DM saying like they've, uh, you know, listened to the podcast and um, please, you know, continue to, to reach out to us. We, you know, we're, we're making this podcast to help athletes and coaches get better. So if there's topics you want to hear us talk about, if there's, um, you know, people you want on the podcast uh, to talk about certain things, if there's questions you have, you know, just reach out to us and that gives us more content to help serve you guys. Cause that's the, that's at the end of the day, what our goal is, is to make better athletes and and better coaches for it. So um, with that, we will uh, catch you guys in the next one. Peace.